Hi, morning, everyone. Good to see all of you. If you'd like to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for baptism, the wonderful uh, truth that communicates about Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and how we have identified with him spiritually if we are believers, and that we're able to outwardly profess our faith in Christ through that physical demonstration. And so while we continue to look forward to next Sunday, when baptisms will take place, Lord, help us to determine, especially parents in the same position I'm in, whether our children should be baptized or not. And I pray, Lord, that as we talk about baptism, we can be reminded of what Christ has done for us. I pray that there's any children here who are Christians and should be baptized, that you'd convict them about that. For any children who are unsaved, we ask that you would grant them faith and repentance, uh, repentance of their sins and faith in your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray the same for any unsaved adults who are here, Lord. And for those saved adults who, if any of them have not been baptized, that they would be convicted to do so. Use me as your vessel, Lord to communicate whatever further truths you want your people to hear prior to the baptisms next Sunday. Help us to remove distractions from our minds, recognizing that this is a time of worship and that you want to speak to us through your word. Give us anticipation about hearing from you. We do thank you for this time, Lord. Pray that you can be pleased with it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title this morning's sermon is When Children Should Be Baptized, Part 3, with baptisms approaching uh, next Sunday. We started, or I started sharing some sermons to help families determine whether their children should be baptized because that's exactly what we've been going through as a family. Because we believe our children must be saved before being baptized, over the last two Sundays I gave you some evidences of salvation to look for in your children. We shouldn't assume that perhaps just because our children have prayed a prayer that they're saved, we want to see evidence of that in their lives. And so hopefully when we talked about some of those evidences, as adults even, you are considering whether those evidences are in your lives. We should all examine our salvation. It's not something that any of us uh, would want to get wrong, and so we would hopefully become more convinced in our salvation if we see those evidences, and maybe for any adults who are deceived about their their salvation, would hear those evidences discussed and then recognize that they haven't uh, been born again yet. Uh, What a wonderful thing to realize on this side of heaven before taking our last breath. And so we're going to look at a few baptisms in the book of Acts as we uh, look forward to kind of bringing this little brief series to an end. But first we need to have an understanding of circumcision and what it prefigured or foreshadowed. So I told you in the first sermon that we are what's known as, um, we believe in credo-baptism or believer's baptism. And the way that I told you that you can remember that is in credo-baptist you hear the word creed or think of a confession. Believers are people who have a creed. That creed is that Christ is Lord, or they have made a confession. They have confessed that Christ is Lord. And so, um, because of that, we believe that the requirement for salvation is, or the requirement for baptism is salvation. Now, the alternative view is known as pedo-baptism, and to remember, or infant baptism, and to remember that straight, think of a pediatrician, that word pedo uh, meaning child. They believe in infant baptism, and they see a strong relationship between circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament. So the idea is because infants were circumcised in the Old Testament, then they should be baptized in the New Testament. But there's an important issue, or I would even say problem with this. Physical circumcision was always intended to prefigure or foreshadow a wonderful New Testament truth or reality, and that is spiritual circumcision of the heart. I've told you many times before 
that there are Old Testament, um, or that the Old Testament prefigures or foreshadows New Testament truths or realities, and that's the case with circumcision. It was always intended to look forward to or to prefigure uh, the spiritual circumcision of the heart. And so what's kind of ironic to me is that in a sense, that circumcision of the heart takes place when people are saved, when they repent of their sins and they put their faith in Christ. And so one of the ironies is that's something that infants can't do. So I see a considerable breakdown there associated with that, with a, that paedo-baptist view that circumcision was always going to look forward to the salvation of the individual. Now, here's, here's um, two verses that support that. Colossians 2.11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision, so we're not talking about physical circumcision, it says a circumcision made without hands, or that's not physical, by putting off the body of the flesh, and that's not referring to our physical bodies, but putting off the spiritual flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Romans 2.28, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit and not by the letter. Now, when it says not by the letter, what does that mean? Not by the letter of the, of the law, because the law cannot bring about circumcision of the heart. You can share the, you know, the law, the Ten Commandments with your kids throughout their entire lives, and they're not going to be born again by having the law shared with them. It's only something that the spirit can produce. And so it says a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the law. Now, at that point, when circumcision of the heart has taken place, or when people have received the true and greater circumcision, not physical, but spiritual, then they're in a position to be baptized. And this brings us to lesson one. Children must have circumcised hearts to be baptized. Children must have circumcised hearts to be baptized. So the true and greater circumcision that God always wanted for his people was not primarily physical, it was spiritual, a circumcision of the heart. Now, just so you don't think this is my opinion, let me share some verses with you that make this point. God gave the sign of the covenant or circumcision as a sign of the covenant to Abraham. But throughout the Old Testament, there were different times when God condemned the Jews for not being circumcised when they were circumcised. That sounds odd, doesn't it? You have many indictments against the Jews for not being circumcised when they were circumcised. Well, what are those verses talking about? They were individuals who were physically circumcised but not spiritually circumcised. Here's a few examples. Leviticus 26:41. God says, I walked contrary to them. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. There's many verses I could give you, but one of the reasons I chose this one is because it's particularly interesting that God said he would remember his covenant with his people if they had spiritual circumcision. And one of the reasons that's interesting is circumcision was the sign of the covenant. But God said he's going to take no notice of that physical circumcision unless it is also accompanied by spiritual circumcision. So even if they had the sign of the covenant or physical circumcision, it was meaningless without the spiritual circumcision. Yeah. Leviticus 26, 41. 
Leviticus 26, 41. I'm sorry, and if that's a mistake up there, then it's, my, it's on me. I must have sent that, sent the wrong verse to, to Isaac. So that should say Leviticus 26, 41. So thanks for pointing that out. And so in these verses, God tells them that the only way he's going to remember their covenant is if they're spiritually circumcised, even though they'd all been physically circumcised. Jeremiah 6, 10. I appreciate that. Anytime you see a mistake, if I share something wrongly, a verse from the pulpit or something, go ahead and let me know. I always appreciate that. I definitely am not above making mistakes. Now, in Jeremiah 6, 10, God says, behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. They wouldn't listen to spiritual truths. These are Jews. They were physically circumcised, but God says that their ears were not circumcised. Ezekiel 44, 6, O house of Israel, enough of all your abominations. And here's the, one of the abominations. Admitting foreigners uncircumcised in heart and flesh to be in my sanctuary profaning my temple. So God was upset that the Israelites were allowing these foreigners into the temple, but he didn't just condemn them for being uncircumcised physically. He said, you're letting them in and their hearts are uncircumcised. Last verse, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and that you may live. And so these verses describe what it looks like when people had that spiritual circumcision of the heart. Let me say that one more time. This verse is describing what it would look like when people had that spiritual circumcision of the heart. It says that then they would love the Lord with all their heart and with all their soul. So it's important to understand, no matter how significant circumcision seemed under the Old Covenant, or as you're reading the Old Testament, physically speaking, it was still meaningless if the, if the heart hadn't been circumcised uh, spiritually speaking. And so the idea which we see throughout Scripture, not just with circumcision, but with anything, is this. The physical without the spiritual is meaningless. Let me say that one more time. The physical without the spiritual is meaningless. And I'll give you some examples. Take your minds to the Sermon on the Mount. I'm sure you're familiar with this. It's interesting to consider that in what, in my estimation, is the greatest sermon ever preached, you've actually got Jesus condemning what we would consider to be good things. Have you ever thought about that? In the Sermon on the Mount, he's condemning what we consider to be good things. For example, giving. He condemns giving when it's done physically, but not spiritually. In other words, when it's being done for what reason? To impress others, for others to know that we're doing it. He even says that that makes us hypocrites. So in other words, when we're giving physically, and we're getting the physical right, but we have the spiritual wrong. Similarly, when we pray, Jesus says if we pray to be seen by others. So we're praying physically, we're doing something well physically, but if we're praying to be seen by others, we're doing it wrong spiritually. If we fast, but we look so sad and gloomy so that people know that we're fasting, then we're doing something physically, but because the spiritual is wrong, not only is the fasting at best meaningless, but at worst is hypocritical. Now think about communion for a moment. People could consume bread, they can consume juice or wine, they can go through the act physically, they can do what's required, but it means nothing if it's not being done right spiritually. And not only would it not mean anything, we know from 1 Corinthians 11 that Paul says if you're to partake of communion in an unworthy manner, not only is it meaningless, you could actually be disciplined for it. People in the early church were getting sick and even dying because of it. My suspicion is I, not that I know of, or at least I'm not aware of anyone dying uh, in, the, 
in this, you know, the church uh, age, the season of the church that we're in, but I still would not think that it's beyond God to perhaps discipline people or discipline us when we partake in an unworthy manner. So the point is the same. If you're doing it physically, but you're not doing it right spiritually, not only is it meaningless, it could be something that God would want to discipline. Now, let me ask, because we've been building up to this, do you see the application for baptism? If it's done physically, but it's not being done right spiritually, then it's meaningless. We're having this conversation as a family. You know, we go to the Donald's pool regularly, teaching my children to swim, and how many times have they went under the water, you know, and come back up, and pointing out that that would mean nothing. You could even have people that go through it in the correct way where someone lowers them under the water. I mean, think of all the symbolism of being of, of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, being lowered under the water, raised. Have you ever noticed when someone's baptized, there's someone that lifts them up out of the water. They don't raise themselves because it's communicating that imagery of God the Father raising God the Son. Someone could go through this and do all of this uh, perfectly, physically speaking, but if they're not doing it right spiritually, then it's meaningless, which is to say either they're not Christians when they're doing it or they don't understand what they're doing, then the baptism would be worthless. Now, here's the question. We were talking about physical circumcision and how, and how prominent it seemed throughout the Old Testament, always looking forward to that greater circumcision of the heart that God desired for his people. And the question is this, when did they finally receive that circumcision of the heart? When did they finally receive that circumcision? It had been 2,000 years from the time that it was given to Abraham before they finally received it. Look, we'll back up. It's in Acts 2. We're going to start at verse 23 for context. Acts 2.23, this is Peter's great sermon on Pentecost, and he says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now imagine this. He said this to these people. He accused them. He says, you crucified him. Pastor Nathan was talking about it when he delivered the communion devotion, that some of the same people who were, who were, who were crying out in worship at the triumphal entry are then you know, less than a week later crying out for Christ's crucifixion. And so some of those same people probably here at Pentecost, and Peter accuses them of crucifying Christ. He says, killed by the hands of lawless men. Skip to verse 36. Peter says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, and here it is again, whom you crucified. So not only did the Jews reject the long-awaited Messiah, I mean, centuries of anticipation for him to come. He comes, but not only did they reject him, they crucify him. They make him, cause him to experience the most uh, shameful, uh, unimaginable uh, death, and this is a brutal indictment that he brings against them. I mean, can you really imagine anything worse being said to people than what Peter just said to these Jews at this moment? But they needed to hear this. 2,000 years in the making, but now we finally get to see them experience the circumcision in the heart that God wanted for them. Look in verse 37. He says, when they heard this, they were, and here it is, they were cut to the heart, cut to the heart, and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? You see this brokenness. You see this contrition. Finally, they received the spiritual circumcision that God wanted for them. And now because of this, because they've experienced or received this spiritual circumcision of the heart, they're now ready to be what? They're the first recipients of it. To be what? Baptized. 
These are the first recipients of Christian baptism. Remember, John the Baptist was performing a baptism of repentance. Christ had not died, been buried, or resurrected yet. They could not be, he could not be baptizing people to identify with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection when he hadn't died, been buried, and resurrected yet. But this is going to be the first baptism or identifying with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And these are the recipients of it because they have received the true and greater circumcision that God desired, which was this circumcision of the heart. But here's the thing. There's no guarantee that this is going to happen with people. Go ahead and turn a few chapters to the right to chapter 7 to see some Jews receive a very similar sermon from Stephen. So Acts 2 contains Peter's great sermon at Pentecost. Acts 7 contains Stephen's great sermon. There's many similarities. Look with me in verse 51. Stephen says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so to you. Now, we can't tell when people's hearts are uncircumcised. We can guess that perhaps they're not believers, that they haven't been born again, they're unregenerate. But apparently Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, could look and tell that these people had uncircumcised hearts. And he accuses them of that. And then verse 52, he says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, or they murdered those prophets who are prophesying of Christ's coming, and then whom you have now betrayed, and then he says, you have murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So you've got Stephen also accusing them of crucifying the Messiah, but look at this completely different response from them. Now, if we had not read this or were unfamiliar with what takes place, we might expect the same response that we see in Acts 2, which is, now when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. But instead, it says they were enraged. They were just furious with Stephen, and they ground their teeth at him. And then look at verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. I mean, you really couldn't have a much different response between these two sets of Jews, could you? You've got the Jews who hear Peter, he accuses them of crucifying Christ, completely broken over their horrendous evil. Stephen says something very similar, no brokenness whatsoever, no humility. Instead, they're furious that he would bring this accusation against them, and then they charged him, and then they murdered him. So he accuses them of being evil and having... Un- they accu- he accused them of murdering the prophets that prophesied of Christ, then murdering Christ when he came, and then they got angry and murdered Stephen for saying that. And so they just demonstrated the uncircumcision of their hearts. And one of the, one of the worst evils in the New Testament, I mean, maybe second only to the crucifixion of Christ himself. Now go ahead and turn back to Acts chapter 2. And while you turn there, let me share the application I see here. Take your minds to the parable of the sower. I'm not saying that Stephen and Peter's sermons were identical, but they were similar enough. And what does the parable of the sower teach us? That you can have the same what? You can have the same message, seed. You can even have the exact same sower. I mean, in this case, the sowers are pretty close. They're two, two of the godliest men in the New Testament, Peter and Stephen. I wouldn't say that they're the same sower, but they're close. But they had similar seeds going out, but completely different soils, right? And so one of the applications that I see with our children, I mean, we can have 
phenomenal family Bible studies. You, you can have your children listening to the greatest sermons throughout the week. You can be, regularly be sharing the Word of God with them. Perhaps it's always watching over them. Maybe you have the Word of God on when, they're, when they go to sleep at night. I know some families do that based on Deuteronomy 6 and the Word always from the time they go to sleep until the time they wake up. Some families applying that, but here's the thing. If they don't have the soil for it, the seed is not going to take root. It doesn't matter how well our children are catechized or discipled or how many times the gospel is preached to them. If their hearts are not fertile, it is not going to receive the seed. And so, yes, preach the gospel to your children and make sure they hear the word of God. Put them underneath godly biblical teaching, but also make sure that you're doing what? Praying that God opens their hearts to receive the gospel. Praying that God gives them that soil that receives that seed that produces fruit. I mean, how many times, I think we could probably all think of examples of godly families with multiple children coming up serving the Lord. You look at those children and think, I'd be so thankful to have one of the, my children become like one of those children or like most of those children, and then to see one child just completely rebel and turn from the Lord. And why is that? They're hearing the same gospel. They're hearing the same teaching. They're in the same family. And so we must be praying that our children have these receptive hearts of that fertile soil. Now look back at Acts 2 to see the Jews who had this good soil that led to spiritually circumcised hearts. Acts 2, verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they're convicted. Peter tells them to repent and be baptized. Look at verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And I want you to notice something about these Jews that is important. They're baptized. Only moments earlier, they're accused of crucifying Christ. Not long before that, I mean, we're talking seven weeks, 49 days, they're calling out some of them for Christ's crucifixion. Okay, just play that out in your mind. You have individuals who are calling out for Christ's crucifixion, they're accused of being his murderers, and only moments after that, they're baptized. So what's my point? My point is, there's not a considerable amount of spiritual maturity or growth or some lengthy season of discipleship that must take place for people to be baptized. And this brings us to lesson two. Part one, salvation is the requirement for baptism. Part two, but spiritual maturity is not. Salvation is the requirement for baptism, but spiritual maturity is not. Now, the first part of this lesson was from our first sermon. So we're kind of coming full circle. I almost, I've, I've told you enough times, I think something's going to be one sermon, you know, end up being three sermons. So I had this lesson. Now we're getting around to the second part of this lesson. I thought, what do I need to communicate about baptism leading up to Easter? I need to communicate that the requirement for salvation or the requirement for baptism is salvation. But then why the second part of this lesson? Because what is the question that's going to accompany that truth? Well, if people must be saved to be baptized, if salvation is the requirement, then how long do people need to be Christians or how long do people need to be saved before they're baptized? If they must be saved, then how much must they grow before they can be baptized. And these Christians were not very mature. 
you would think that if there was anyone who needed to go through some discipleship or classes or, or courses to learn Christianity before being baptized, it would be these people. But they got baptized, it says, right after they received the word. That's the phrase, received the word, which is to say, received it in faith, or right after they believed, which means there was no lengthy growth in the knowledge of Scripture. There was no lengthy plan for maturity. They simply believed and were baptized. And this establishes here in Acts 2 at Pentecost the pattern that we see through the rest of the book of Acts that believers can be very spiritually immature, but they they can and or even they should be baptized soon after conversion. Now, I don't know if some of you know this, this our church is non-denominational. I'm glad it is, but it used to be denominationally speaking Church of Christ which taught baptismal regeneration or taught that for people to be saved they had to be baptized. That's the moment of regeneration for them when they're baptized. Uh, and we disagree with that. We we don't, we think that's unbiblical. But why do they think that? Why, why are there still some people, why is there at least one denomination or perhaps two and some number of Christians even today who believe that you're saved when you're baptized? One of the prime reasons is that baptism took place so soon after conversion in the book of Acts that it looks like what? They're the same, the same moment. And that's not the case. It's just that people were saved and got baptized so soon after that it looks like the same but it definitely is not. But, that's, but my point is this. People did not have to grow or they did not have to be Christians for such a, a length of time. They did not have to come to understand so many spiritual truths. They just had to be saved. Now, we do take that very seriously that people would be saved. The previous two sermons were all about the evidences that you would look for in your children's life so you could be confident in that child before that child is saved. So we're not, we're, we don't take this lightly. We're not thinking that just because, you know, your, your child closed his eyes during a, during a family Bible study that, that you have confidence that your child is a Christian or because your child said some words or read some verses or one time you walked in the room and saw them reading the Bible. We're, we're looking for considerably more evidence than that. But when we are confident in a child's salvation, then the next step is for that child to be baptized. Go and turn to Acts 8 so you can see a couple other examples of this. Here's the context. The Ethiopian eunuch has left Jerusalem, uh, and Philip doesn't know that yet. Philip's kind of walking by faith. He, he, he's a nice illustration of what the Christian life is often like, where you get one step, and then after you take that step, God reveals the second step. And so the first step for Philip is to head south from Jerusalem down this road to Gaza. He doesn't know where he's going uh, except south, and he doesn't know what he's looking for. After he does that, he gets, his second, he gets the second order from God, which is go up to that chariot that you can see. And so he runs up to this chariot where the Ethiopian eunuch is reading God's word. When I'm confused, or many people when they're confused, they read things aloud. And this Ethiopian is confused by what he's reading, and so he's reading this aloud. Philip comes upon his chariot, and we'll pick up at verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and he asked, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, spiritually speaking, you must say that this Ethiopian is like a child, right? We're talking, these sermons have, have had a lot of instruction for parents. And in a sense, what transpires here with this Ethiopian is like or resembles what transpires with our children. Our children can read. And then what are you going to ask your child when your child's reading the Bible? 
Do you understand what you're reading? And then your child is going to say, how can I, unless someone guides me or helps me? And that's our responsibility as parents to ask our children. I hope, I hope we're all asking our children. I don't do it as, as often as I should, but how's your time in, in God's Word? What have you been reading? Are, are, you know, are you understanding it? Let's talk about it. Those are questions we should be asking as parents, and there's a nice little example of it here with the Ethiopian who in many respects is like a, ba- a, a baby, spiritually speaking. Now, verse 32, the passage of Scripture that he's reading was this. It's from Isaiah 53. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Talk about an open door, right? <laughs> Someone's ever reading Isaiah 53 and then they ask you this question. This is what you call an open door. Now, I will be the first to say that there are some confusing parts in the book of Isaiah but most of us would say this is not one of them. This is one of the parts of Isaiah that is the clearest. Not only is this one of the clearest descriptions of Christ in the book of Isaiah, this is one of the clearest descriptions of Christ in the entire Old Testament. There is more language of substitutionary atonement and revelation of Christ's um, crucifixion in Isaiah 53 than any other passage in the entire Old Testament except possibly Psalm 22. Yet the Ethiopian didn't know if Isaiah was talking about himself or if Isaiah was talking about someone else. And interestingly, Isaiah, or the Ethiopian, he did not even list Jesus as one of the possibilities. So he says, is Isaiah talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? And then he doesn't even have any guesses about who the someone else would be. It seems like the name Jesus didn't even pass from his lips until Philip introduces him to him. Now, I'm not mocking the Ethiopian or criticizing him. I'm simply making the point that this man had very little what? Spiritual understanding or knowledge. But look at verse 35. Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, beginning with Isaiah 53, he told him the good news, or he told him the gospel about Jesus. And, as they, and so they went for some period of time, and then it seems Philip must have talked to him about water, baptism, They come to some water, and the Ethiopian says, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, when the Ethiopian says, what prevents me from being baptized, what might you be tempted to say if you didn't know the rest of the account? The fact that he's so spiritually immature, the fact that if he is a Christian, he hasn't been one very long, the fact that he knows almost nothing about the Bible, and the fact that he didn't even know Isaiah 53 was about Jesus. But was there anything preventing him? No, there wasn't, because he met the requirement for baptism, which is salvation, and not some amount of spiritual maturity. And so notice what happened. Verse 38, he commanded the chariot to stop. They both, notice this, they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And then notice this, and when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Okay, now let me share something. I want to be clear about this. I take no pleasure in criticizing other churches. 
I, if I talk bad about cults, I don't consider those churches. So when I say I don't take any pleasure in talking bad about other churches, I mean when I share differences that we have with other biblical or godly churches, like Presbyterian churches. And so there are wonderful Presbyterians. There are some um, tremendous Presbyterians who have done great things for the church, for God's people. But with that said, I also have this responsibility primarily my, my job description could be summarized as equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So that's what I'm supposed to do is equip you. Now, in Presbyterian circles where they're baptizing babies, I would just, to be concise, I want you to be equipped. I want you to understand why we don't do that. I want you to understand how to respond if people talk to you about baptizing babies. I want you to be able to say why you would not baptize a baby and why you do believe it's unbiblical. So I'm going to be doing that a few times in this sermon, and this is the first time. I'll share something with you that I wasn't aware of that perhaps some of you might not be aware of as well. I thought that pedo-baptists sprinkled babies because they didn't want to do what with a baby? <laughs> Dunk it under the water, you tell the baby, hey, hold your breath, you know, I mean. So it's like, I thought that's why they sprinkled babies. So come to find... and. And I, and I assumed that what did they, and I assumed that with adults, they would immerse. I thought that they had a baptismal or something like that. And so one time I was talking to this, this Presbyterian and who had come to our church on a day when we pre- performed some baptisms. And I said, so, well, I mean, you've seen baptisms at your church like this before, right? And the person said, no. I said, I said, well, what have you seen? And they said, sprinkling. And I said, well, you've never, so you've never seen an adult baptized? And they said, no, we sprinkle even our adults. And I said, you've never seen immersion before? And the person said, no. And I said, well, wh- where is the, and I'm trying to learn here, I said, where is the identification with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection through sprinkling? How is any of the imagery that baptism is intended to communicate communicated through sprinkling? And there, there, was, there wasn't a really answer. The person hadn't even heard that before. The baptism was intended to identify people with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And one of the things that really surprised me about this is what does the word baptize mean? What does it mean? It means submerse or immerse. If the word baptize meant sprinkle, I might rethink my theology. But just the, the definition of the word communicates that people would be Immerse, and so one of, and so the reason I'm mentioning this is one of the things that I don't understand about Pado Baptists is if we were supposed to sprinkle, what would it not say in the account we just read? It wouldn't say that Philip and the Ethiopian went down into the water and got soaked for no reason, and then came up out of the water. Now my suspicion is the Ethiopian probably traveled. I mean, he's with a queen, probably traveled with some amount of what what if they wanted to sprinkle what could he have done could have just taken a cup and taken some water and kind of sprinkled it on the ethiopian's head why did john the baptist have to go to all the trouble of standing in the middle of the jordan and why did people have to travel some number of miles to the jordan to be baptized by him except that they understood that even a baptism of repentance meant immersing the people and so I don't want to sound condescending, but I just, I want to equip you, and I am your pastor, and I just want to say that I think any honest reading of Scripture has to acknowledge this. The only reason that there are babies being baptized is it is a carryover from Catholicism. That's it. 
you are never going to glean this teaching from Scripture, at least in my estimation. And I'm not an expert on it, but everything I see argues against sprinkling. And this is one of the premier instances here. Why would people in the early church be going to places where they could be immersed when they would have water in their home and then they could simply sprinkle it on people's foreheads? It just doesn't make sense. Now look at the verse, or actually go ahead and turn with me to Acts 16. This is the account with the Philippian jailer. So Paul and Silas are going to be delivered from jail. And verse 30 says, Then he brought them out. The Philippian jailer brings out Paul and, Paul and Silas, and he says to them, here's another open door, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them, and then notice this, it says, the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Now, this Philippian jailer who's previously imprisoning Christians, how mature do you think he was? What sort of spiritual understanding do you think he had? Not much, not much. Yet, look at the words, same hour and baptized at once. The baptism took place almost immediately after his conversion. There was no delay, no, no need for spiritual growth. And so I would say if you're a Christian, if, if whether child or whether adult, God commands you to be baptized. That is the next step following your conversion. Now, this account reveals one of the main arguments that Paedo-Baptists use. It says that the household was baptized, and they'll say, well, then that must include babies. And there are two problems with this. And I want to stress this not just because it applies to this account, but because I think it's a really important hermeneutic tool or, or a real important tool for interpreting Scripture. We never build our theology from silence. In other words, we don't do this. We don't say, well, Scripture doesn't say that there weren't any babies, so we will assume that there were babies. We don't do that. Instead, we say, because there's no mention of babies, we are not going to assume that there were any. We build on the truth that's presented in God's Word. In other words, we don't build from silence. And here's what's kind of shocking to me. The, the Bible is big enough that if God, or even just using the book of Acts, if God wants to add a few more words, He can. How easily could God have added the word baby, somewhere in this account or in any other account to lead us to think what? That baby should be baptized if that's what he wanted. And so we don't want to speak into silence and, and definitely, even worse, build considerable theologies from that. Plus, if you look in verse 31, it says, believe and you will be saved. Now, who would be the people who would believe and be saved. Not babies. Yeah, babies don't believe. Babies get older and then hopefully come to repentance and faith in Christ. And so these people believed 
and then we're saved, and then we're baptized. So in other words, it's pretty evident, even from the passage, that the people who were baptized were the people who believed. And that leaves us with this very reasonable interpretation that the verses support. The gospel was preached, they heard it, believed, were saved, and then were baptized. Now, this brings us back to the tension that I mentioned in the previous sermons regarding children being baptized. We want our children to be baptized because the Bible commands it, but we don't want our children, we all agree, to be baptized if they're not Christians, right? We want our children to be baptized soon after conversion, but we also want to wait long enough to be convinced that their conversion has taken place or long enough that we have seen some evidences of salvation. And then there's also what we don't want. We don't want to look back and feel like we baptized our children when they were too young. That's something I would hope to, uh, a regret that I would hope to prevent any of the parents here from experiencing. We don't want our children to be baptized and then turn from Christ, revealing that they were never Christians. We don't want our children to publicly identify with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, or publicly profess their faith in Christ through baptism and then later shame Christ through their actions. So it's difficult as a parent trying to decide and work through this, and it's one that I've been going through over the last couple months, you know, for the first time where my children have been old enough to consider some of them being baptized. And so I do want to give you one final encouragement to help you in deciding when your children should be baptized. And this brings us to our last lesson. Don't try to talk your children into being baptized. Lesson three, don't try to talk your children into being baptized. Here's why you should not try to talk your children into being baptized. Because if you try to talk your children into being baptized, you will probably be able to talk them into being baptized. And that's the problem. Then your child is going to be baptized, and what are you going to be forced to wonder? If that child's baptism is more a product of your encouragement than their conversion or than their heart for God, if we coerce our children, we're never going to know if it's because we talked them into it or, for lack of a better way to say it, the Holy Spirit talked them into it. Now, what I want is I, I want the Holy Spirit to talk my children into being baptized. And to make this practical... Here are some things I would highly discourage you from saying to your kids. Don't say, why haven't you been baptized yet? You should have been baptized by now. Don't scorn them. Don't berate them. Don't tell them you're ashamed of them. Don't say, haven't you seen all these other kids who have been baptized? Why haven't you joined them? Look at so-and-so getting baptized. Don't you want to be baptized? Yes, as much as we want our children to be baptized... We need to refrain pressuring them to allow the Holy Spirit to work. And think about this. If your children are in a Bible teaching church, they're going to hear teaching or preaching like this or like the last couple sermons on baptism. And what else? They're going to witness baptisms. They're going to know that baptism is commanded. So it's not really something that needs to be forced on them. Also, assuming we're, cat we're discipling or catechizing our children, talking about the Word of God in our homes during the week, then baptism is going to be a topic, and questions are going to arise, and this is what I would tell you to do, and this is really important. 
just because I tell you not to talk your children into being baptized, that doesn't mean you don't talk to your children about baptism. You see the difference there? We answer questions, we teach on it, we educate them, we explain them, we tell them it's commanded. And, but I would say that's the line. That's as far as we want to go. And allow the Holy Spirit to introduce questions in their hearts that provide wonderful discussions around God's Word about baptism. Tell them that what baptism is. Tell them it's a way for them to, to profess outwardly what is trans or reveal outwardly what is transpired inwardly. When a person becomes a Christian, they're spiritually identifying with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And so every baptism is a physical revelation of what has already taken place spiritually. It's a way to identify with Christ. And thankfully, I, I mean, I'm not making a joke, God chose water versus dirt, right? When you're going to identify with Christ's burial, you don't have to go down under the ground and be buried by dirt. God says you get to use water and then a all this wonderful imagery of the Holy Spirit of cleansing, even somewhat of evangelism, that when you come up out of the water and you're hugging other people and, and water is getting on them. So it's a really beautiful thing. And explain all this to your children. Talk about them. Let, let them see your enthusiasm regarding baptism and the beauty of it. Let them process these answers that they hear. And then this is probably one of the most important things. Pray that God gives our children that soil that receives that seed. We were reading throughout Acts where it says they received the word, they received the word, they received the word, and then they were baptized. Let's be praying that our children receive the word, that God opens their hearts to the gospel, that it's planted deeply and that it captures them for Christ. And then we can trust the Holy Spirit to be working. And then when they seek us out and they say, you know, I really want to be baptized. I know that this is what God commands. And I, I have put my faith in Christ. I have repented of my sins. I know that I need a Savior. I want to take this next step. As a parent, even at that point, you might still even tap the brakes a little bit and pry you know, ask some questions, find out that they're, they're really, you know, committed to, to following Christ. Now, I want to address the children. If you're a Christian, which means you have repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ, then there's no amount of the Bible that you must know, and there's no uh, amount of spiritual maturity that you must attain to or reach before being baptized. But with that said, you must be baptized. That's what God commands. If you're a child and you're convinced you're a Christian, then God commands you to be baptized. Now, finally, I know I've been talking to children over the last uh, couple weeks, but someone, a pastor called me. This is interesting. Listen to this. A pastor called me, and his father attends his church. The pastor, I believe, is in his 60s, and his father is in his 90s. And he had, the, the pastor had grown up in a Christian home, thought highly of his Christian father. The pastor preaches on baptism one Sunday, and his father in his 90s comes to him and says, I've never been baptized. I would like to be baptized. And they had to take this man in his 90s who could barely move, and they had to lower him into the water and then raise him up out of the water. And, this, and the pastor had no idea that his father had never been baptized. And he, he rejoiced over this conviction that his sermon had brought. I mean, what, what a wonderful thing. I'm one of the very few pastors or very few people who had the joy of baptizing my own parents. 
I mean, how tremendous that, that was for me. And this man was sharing his joy associated with baptizing his father, who's in his 90s. And so all that to say, I don't want to take for granted that even some adults in, in the church I pastor might not be baptized. And so if you're an adult and you're convinced you're a Christian, you've put this off for too long. You know, God has commanded you to be baptized, and you have been, you, I don't know if I'd say I disobeyed, but I would at least say you have not obeyed that command up to this point, and that is something that you need to make right, and you have the opportunity next Sunday. Now, I want to close with this. Pastor Nathan and I were thrilled for our Easter service next Sunday. I want to invite you to invite other people. Pastor Nathan shares about these tracks uh, I appreciate how he's educating us, helping us grow in the area of outreach, something that I'm not particularly, I'm not, I don't consider myself gifted as an evangelist by any means. And so, but as he was talking, as Pastor Nathan was talking about tracks, it occurred to me, because he says, if you give someone a track, then you don't have to worry about the one to deliver the message to that person. The track has the message on it. You don't have to worry about being the one to verbally deliver it. The message or the gospel is on that track. Well, in a sense, that's kind of the same when you invite people to Easter Sunday, right? I'm the one that has the responsibility of delivering the gospel or the message verbally to them. So all you really need to do is you just need to invite people to your church for Easter Sunday and then pray for them, pray that they will come and then pray that God opens their hearts. So be sure to invite friends and family. We have some wonderful special music that's planned. We're excited to bring glory to Christ and and thrilled about the different people that want to get baptized. Pastor Nathan and Jill have done a lot of work on the grounds. They, they humbly acted as though it was many other people, but in my estimation, it seemed like it's mostly been the two of them, and in particular, Jill doing much of this. So it is not too late to sign up for baptism. If you haven't already, if you have any questions or anything like that, please be sure to seek out myself or one of the other elders. We consider it a privilege to be able to speak with you. Father, we thank you for what Christ has done for us, for his death, burial, and resurrection and that spiritually we, that same death, burial, and resurrection takes place in our hearts when we are baptized, or, or when we come to faith in Christ, and we are then commanded to be baptized and identify physically with what has taken place spiritually, Lord. And so be with all the parents, myself included, as we are trying to determine uh, which of our children should be baptized. Stir up the children we pray that, we, that our children would be burdened and come to us and press us about being baptized, that it's not something that we would have to uh, or be tempted to talk them into. Lord, convict these children that they would press us about it and then give us wisdom as parents whether they should be baptized. We do thank you so much for Christ's resurrection as we look forward to it next Sunday. Be with people this week. I feel like we're not the most evangelistic church. Uh, help us to grow in that area and be thinking about uh, friends or neighbors or co-workers that you would have us invite to church, Lord, and give us the, the um, courage to invite them and then give them the receptiveness to attend, Lord. Be with me this week as I put my sermon together. We do thank you for this time, Lord, and, and pray you'll be with us uh, the rest of today and this week as we go out to serve you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.